Our guest today is Dr. David S. Reynolds, a historian who has written extensively on the Civil War era. He's won numerous awards, including the Bancroft Prize and the Ambassador Book Award, just to name a few. And he is the author of the book, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. Uh, Professor Reynolds, thank you for being on our show. Great to be here, Richard. Thank you. Great. So much is made about President Lincoln's lack of experience and his many supposed professional failures prior to winning the presidency, but you seem to push back against this narrative. So what's the real story here? Yeah, um, one of the best books on him, David Donald's uh, Lincoln, uh, one of the better known books, actually says very frankly that no president has ever entered the highest office being the least prepared, uh, less prepared than, than Lincoln, that he was the least prepared of all. And on the surface, it kind of looks that way because um, he had less than one year of education, just primary school education. And uh, that, that was it. Um, and uh, he didn't go through any formal, formal uh, self-education either. But, what I found is that he had something far more important. He was insatiably curious. Um, if he were on the law circuit around Illinois, he would go to a farmer and say, how does that machine work? And what brand of cow is that? And, or, and that pig over there, what, you know, can you describe that to me? And very, very curious about the world around him. Um, and also he, uh, loved to read poetry in particular, newspapers, but also poetry. And poetry kind of organized his thoughts. And he memorized Shakespeare by the page. He um, didn't do it to impress people. But uh, suddenly, <clears throat> suddenly he would come out with a Shakespearean soliloquy that was on his hard disk, <laughs> his brain, and uh, or a Burns poem or something like that. So he was uh, really exposed to different levels of culture, so much so that his contemporary Emerson said, uh, there's one hero who stands out from the rest as somebody who bridges the entire range of experience from the very highest, um, Shakespeare, the opera, and all of that, to the lowest. Um, he liked body humor and grotesque um, frontier humor. And Emerson said he went down as far so that the very dogs believed in him. <laughs> so uh, in a way, he was very, very open to experience. And it's that Lincoln that I'm really interested in, the songs he loved, the poems he loved, and what really made him, uh, what, what was going on inside of him. Right. And you talk about Lincoln's lifespan as an era of sensationalism, violence, zany humor, surreal, the surreal and the bizarre, which uh, I think for anyone that follows politics now is a bit comforting to know that it's, it's been like this for a while. So can you expand on just what you meant by that? 
Well, I think there's been interest in sensationalism for a long time in many cultures, but the difference was that because of changes in print, um, printing techniques and also distribution techniques, suddenly this was available to the masses. And so the newspapers that used to be, used to cost six cents, suddenly were one cent, the penny papers, and they were filled with um, sensational stories about murders and suicides and, oh, adultery and all, all, all this stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, Lincoln grew up in this kind of culture. Also in the popular humor, uh, Lincoln said it was characterized by grotesqueness. And it was a very violent kind of humor of eye gouging and fighting and scrapping and scraping. And uh, it often featured these kind of frontier types that were just wild men. And But people get a lot of thrills out of these kind of very, very wild uh, escapades in the Crockett manuscripts, uh, the Davy Crockett manuscripts, and so almanacs and so forth. And uh, P.T. Barnum, who was a sensation, he, was, he founded show business and wasn't in the circus business back then, but he was in the uh, mu museum business. And he put on sensational displays like a, the Fiji mermaid, who was this beautiful blonde, half-naked woman. She was presented that way in, in the posters, but actually it was just a, a monkey's torso tied to a salmon's tail uh, suspended hmm. in some water. And, hmm. and uh, anyway, the biggest, the smallest, um, the fattest, he would put you know things on display. So in a way, uh, Lincoln had to sort of accommodate to that culture as well because he was sold as, as Abe. Uh, that's why my book is called Abe. The kind of rough frontiersman with his uh, sleeves rolled up and he's wielding an axe and he's splitting the rails. And by the time that um, he was advertised that way, uh, it had been many years uh, since he split rails because he was a respectable lawyer by that time and wore good suits and all of that and was making a good income. But he allowed himself to be sold as Abe, even though he hated the name Abe. But he said, without names like Old Abe, Uncle Abe, um, Honest Abe, I wouldn't have been elected. He hmm. just said, I, I would not have been elected. So he was sort of put on display almost in a Barnum-like Barnum way in 1860. Yeah. So how did Lincoln's life on the frontier <clears throat> and also his the the Baptist background of his family how did that affect his political thinking and his overall philosophy? The Baptist um, thing was very important because his family joined a small branch of the regular Baptist church that was anti-slavery. And which was pretty rare in Kentucky at that time. This was in K Kentucky where he was born. And yeah, um, so he grew up um, listening to these anti-slavery uh, preachers. And he said, you know, I never remembered a time in my childhood when I didn't hate slavery, when I did ha didn't hate slavery. And so it was partly, a, you know, uh, the fact that he was lucky enough 
in retrospect, to be born into this anti-slavery kind of sect. Um, and then the frontier experience was very, very crude and rough. And um, he was an excellent wrestler, a good fighter. However, he did not indulge in the popular sport of rough and tumble fighting on the frontier, which was the object basically was to gouge out the eyeball of, in one eyeball of, of the other person or chew off the other person's ear or something like that. And he, uh, and his father was a very tough fighter too. Um, his father got in one fight with a really, really, really tough guy. And, and the father beat the guy very easily, easily. And after that, nobody wanted to touch the father and not many people wanted to fight Abe because he was excellent. But he never would lower himself to get in this rough and tumble kind of fighting. And actually, he had a very tender side that was um, nurtured, I think, in part by his uh, very loving mother who died when he was young, and then his, his equally loving uh, and affectionate step stepmother, Sarah Bush John Johnson, because his dad remarried soon after. And Lincoln himself... Um, even though he was a good marksman, you had to be a good marksman on the frontier because you had to hunt for your your food, basically, you know, and so forth. But um, when he was like eight years old, he, he shot a turkey, a wild turkey uh, that was in the front yard, and he felt so badly about bad that he said, I just didn't feel like hunting after that. So he never <clears throat> would willingly go out and hunt or anything like that and he had a side to him that hated cruelty to animals a lot of people on the frontier love to throw like a live squirrel or chipmunk or a rabbit into the burning fire and watch them squirm and he hated that he wrote essays against it so in a sense the um, frontier nurtured both strength and a certain kind of tenderness i think in in him and a certain kind of gentleness as well. I was struck by how much Lincoln believed in the American experiment and that he hated slavery because it was basically a stain on that experiment. He said, quote, and you cite this in your book, he said, quote, I hate, I hate it, meaning slavery, because it deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world, <clears throat> enables the enemies of free institutions with plausibility to taunt us as hypocrites. And he seemed to also believe that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document and had said, quote, I believe if we could arrest the spread and place slavery where Washington and Jefferson and Madison placed it, it would be in the course of ultimate extinction. So how did he come to that belief as far as the founders and slavery? Well, the Constitution is a complicated document because there are certain clauses in there that seemed to protect slavery at that time. They've since been amended out of the Constitution, but at the time, the Fugitive Slave Clause and also the um, Three-Fifths Representation. But he believed that basically the spirit of the Constitution and the Fifth Amendment and um, due process and all of that uh, transcended uh, the pro-slavery passages within the Constitution. And also, um, 
he thought that the spirit of the Declaration of Independence basically informed that whole, um, which is all men are created equal, uh, informed that whole early generation and that the founding fathers, okay, they accepted slavery because it was already there, but basically most of them thought that over time it should and it would disappear so that fundamentally, and he went back and he, he sort of assembled an argument about that. Uh, so, yeah, um, and he, he makes a beautiful case for that in the Cooper Union Address and several other speeches, too. So you note that Lincoln indicated his support for women's suffrage very early in his career in 1836, and he actually defended a number of women in court as a lawyer. How did he come to this conclusion, the support for women, women's suffrage, more than eight decades before women actually got the right to vote nationwide? Yeah, he said uh, in 1836 that he really thought that women should have the chance to to vote, to vote. Um, he also thought that women were unfairly treated sexually and that because uh, back then if a woman was known to have relations before marriage. You know, she was considered fallen, a fallen woman, and she might as well become a, a, pro, a sex worker or something like that. Um, he said that that's not fair at all. The, the man bears responsibility as well, uh, and women are being victimized. Um, but he came out for the vote uh, 12 years before the Seneca Falls Convention, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass, they came together in 1848 and uh, said women should have the vote. Of course, it wouldn't be till 1920 till women actually got the vote. But um, he had a natural sense of justice and a natural sense of, of honor and in, in integrity. And um, he really had an open mind uh, toward women. And he married a woman, Mary Todd Lincoln, who, despite her undeniable idiosyncrasies, um, was was very bright and also very outspoken about politics and really goaded him on, on to become a uh, masterful politician. So, uh, yeah, he was uh, adventurous in, in that way in, in terms of uh, women women. Right. And Lincoln also rose politically during the time that there was strong anti-immigrant sentiment. And you write that Lincoln was against nativism, but he also had to navigate the political waters. <laughs> so can you expand on that and Lincoln's journey on the issue of immigration? Yeah, he was appalled by the popularity of the nativist movement which became quite powerful um, in the 1850s, mid-1850s. And he said, ironically, he said, um, first we say that all men are created equal. Then we say all men are created equal except for black people. Now we say all are created equal except for blacks and, and Catholic people from Ireland. I mean, where is this going to stop? I mean, you know, where, where is uh, human equality? We're going to draw the line here. So he was utterly disgusted by it. But 
he had to play a fine line because a lot of people in the Republican Party at that time were kind of nativist. So he tried to have to have to he he sort of took active steps to in conventions to guide the Republican Party a little more toward a sense of openness toward these arriving uh, Catholic people from Ireland and Germany and so forth. So, yeah. Hmm. But, uh, and he, he was an a- active force, I think, because he actually got along uh, very well with Catholics, with Jewish people, with African-Americans, uh, and so forth. So uh, people of many, uh, with Irish and so forth, you know, he, he, he got along with, uh, because of his openness, his democratic openness. Right. And you alluded uh, just a few moments ago to his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, and she uh, has uh, basically has gotten a bad rap uh, in terms of her reputation. What did you learn about her that we didn't know? Or maybe put another way, what do we get right and what do we get wrong about Mary Todd Lincoln? I think what we get right is that she could be a very difficult person in a lot of ways. She um, was possibly bipolar. We don't really know for sure. She has certain physical uh, uh, illnesses that uh, um, affected her. Um, And uh, she was certainly temperamental. Um, She also, but what we also got right is that once she was in the White House, she overspent the alloc- allocated funds and uh, uh, by quite a mountain. She was trying to fix up the White House and she wanted to dress like the first lady. And so she spent a lot, a lot of money on clothing and so forth. So, I mean, there were, there were also, she was a very sort of jealous person. Um, I think what we've missed is that um, without her, even William Herndon, who, was the, the law partner of, of Lincoln. He actually didn't like her whatsoever, and she didn't like him either. But he said, you know, <laughs> without, without Mary Todd Lincoln, um, he would not have become president. He never would have gotten there because he would have settled into his domestic life and his lawyer life, be, become a lawyer and kind of middle-class, upper-middle-class lawyer. And, and she... Now, uh, Herndon called her like a, a toothache, <laughs> you know, a constant thing. She, she really, she really um, got going his ambition because um, even as a child, she had said, someday I'm going to marry a president. She had been close to Henry Clay, who was a politician and all the, he was a friend of the family. And uh, so when she grows up, she uh, is courted by Stephen Douglas, who ran for president, and Abe Lincoln, uh, who was the opponent of Stephen Douglas. And uh, she uh, ended up marrying um, uh, Lincoln. And, and I think that they basically had a good marriage um, in, in many, many ways. It wasn't always smooth. It wasn't always easy. But I think it was fundamentally very strong. And she was extremely devoted to him uh, and, and he to her. He looked at her at a White House function in one of her beautiful dresses one day and says, she looks as beautiful as when I married her many years ago. And he says, I fell in love with her then, and I'm still very much in love with her. And I, I think fundamentally, it was a love relationship. And, and even 
the fact that they, when he was on the law circuit, he had to spend uh, about four months away from her, away from her because he was traveling. But even the spaces in their togetherness somehow contributed to the uh, relationship. She got close to some women also, uh, some friends and everything. And he was out there with his law companions and joking around. So and it didn't really make the marriage uh, dysfunctional. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hmm. So, you write that Lincoln was able to attack slavery without demonizing uh, slaveholders. How did he do this? And what was his thinking there? Yeah, he um, <clears throat> uh, basically said, you know, if we lived in the South, because he had moved to the North, he said, we, if we lived down there, we'd feel the same way they do um, about slavery. Um, he tried to sympathize with the other side of the picture. He did this in his law practice. He dealt with over 5,000 law, law cases. And he said, I always tried to study my opponent's point of view even more <laughs> or just as much as my own case. You know, he, And it bred a kind of objectivity and a, a kind of compassion and an understanding of the other side. Uh, and even in the second inaugural address after the Civil War was virtually over in March 1865, he said, you know, both sides prayed to the same God and read the same Bible, read the same Bible. And he, he really tried to uh, uh, reach out to the other side, even, even when he was fighting, fighting the South. He never really demonized them. And it shows uh, the breadth of his heart uh, and his uh, basic human sympathy, uh, which could bridge uh, the divide uh, between him and his opponents. So you write that he was friends with African-Americans and whites who were in the Underground Railroad. Could you talk about those relationships and how they came about? Yeah. <clears throat> He lived in Springfield, Illinois, uh, in a neighborhood where there were 21 African-Americans living within three blocks. Several of them, like William Donegan, who was a shoemaker, uh, were involved in the Underground Railroad. Uh, he also uh, knew several Illinois politicians who were radical anti-slavery. Um, like Owen Lovejoy, and, and uh, who was uh, the brother of the anti-slavery martyr, Elijah Lovejoy, who had been killed by a pro-slavery mob. But um, Owen Lovejoy was very, very active on the Underground Railroad. And um, among the black people that he got close to was William Florville, 
who was his barber uh, in Springfield for many, many years. And, and they became quite close to each other. And when Lincoln finally went to uh, Washington, Florville would write him very, uh, very uh, kind of intimate letters. And uh, Mr. Lincoln, you know, I, I think so much of you and everything. And um, he, on, a, on a personal level, he was very close to African-Americans. He had to be a little cautious as a politician early on in Illinois, because Illinois had a lot of racism, a lot of racism. And he was, uh, you know, uh, struggling to gain office. But by the time he was in the White House, he became eventually quite close to Frederick Douglass. At first, Douglass was wary, wary of him, but ultimately they became close. He became close to Sojourner Truth, the older African-American uh, feminist who visited him in the White House. Um, and they had a delightful time together and became close to someone who was really almost beyond uh, Black Lives Matters or anything. I mean, real radical guy named uh, Martin Delaney, Delaney and uh, Lincoln brought him into the white house and Lincoln actually appointed him the highest officer for an African-American uh, in, in the army. But soon, I mean, he didn't serve because soon the war was over, but um, after Lincoln died uh, and Delaney heard about it, he really, he cried. He just cried like a baby. He cried. He just, and here's here's this very proud African, you know, African, and and um, he wanted to build a monument to Lincoln, you know, Lincoln Monument, but it was going to be, it was going to be devoted to, you know, something, some title to do with Lincoln, but it was going to be a monument of an African woman, um, uh, getting up from the ground. Uh, she's on her knees and she's kind of looking up and, and her arms are spread upward and many, many te tears are rolling from her face into an urn and almost like she's always eternally crying because of the death of, um, the great emancipator. Um, and you know, it's, it's very moving that someone who was almost like, um, a pre, I, I wouldn't quite say pre Malcolm X, but he was Malcolm X, but he, but he was a very, very radical, almost Eldridge Cleaver kind, kind of person, uh, had, had this, this, uh, uh, sense of intimacy and closeness with, uh, with Lincoln. And, and I'm really the first one to kind of discuss those kinds of, uh, personal relationships, uh, between Lincoln and, and African Americans. So you, uh, just mentioned Frederick Douglass, the great um, African-American leader of his day. And the way you write about Douglass, it seems like he was very understanding of the political difficulties that Lincoln was up against. And he always, he understood the delays that happened when it came to emancipation. Could you talk more about that specific relationship between Lincoln and Douglass? Yeah. I mean, understandably, Douglass was a little uh, upset at Lincoln initially, because Lincoln reluctantly had to support the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, which, because there's a clause in the Constitution that defends uh, returning fugitives from labor. And early in the Civil War, 
Lincoln felt that he had to uh, make it a uh, less an anti-slavery war than a, a war to repair the Union. So Douglas was a little bit uh, leery of him, but then uh, when he met uh, a few times with with Lincoln personally, he realized that basically um, they were on the same page. And when Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation uh, in 1863, Douglas is thrilled, totally thrilled by that. And then when finally uh, they meet again in August 1864, uh, he comes out of that meeting saying that Lincoln is actually the least prejudiced white man that I've ever met, I think. He didn't feel any sense of racial prejudice or whatever. And Lincoln actually wanted to give him an appointment as a kind of master scout uh, in the army. As it turned down, turned out, they didn't really need him, but uh, uh, Douglas was uh, thrilled by that. So it ended up being a very, very good um, a relationship. And as you mentioned later on, um, Douglas realized that uh, there were certain reasons why Lincoln had to delay delay early on in you know in the war and so forth. So. You make no bones about the fact that Lincoln took several controversial actions during his presidency, during the war, some of which uh, violated the letter of the Constitution, as people know, suspending the writ of habeas corpus, calling up militia volunteers, expanding the army, blockading the southern ports, and he did that all without congressional approval. And there were the incidents with um, the arrest of John Merriman and Clement Vallandigham, he shut down many papers, arrested their staff members. How did Lincoln defend these actions, and how have historians judged them? Well, the diciest thing that he did really was to suspend habeas corpus, which basically, you know, if one is, if you're arrested, you have a right uh, to learn why you've been arrested. Um, one can't just go and arrest somebody, keep them in jail for a certain amount of time without justifying um, um, the arrest. And Lincoln did that a number of times early in the war, suspending habeas corpus, because we have to put it in context. 11 Southern states had left the Union, had left and they had set up their own nation supposedly, with their own president, their own constitution, their own vice president, their own Congress, whole separate, they believed, nation. And Lincoln said, am I going to protect one law if every other law is being utterly demolished here? So he often had people arrested that were under suspicion with being uh, sympathetic to um, the South, to the Confederacy. And the practice back then was to shoot people who deserted from the Northern Army, deserters, to shoot them. Lincoln could hear them shot from the White House. He hated to hear that, but he said, 
am I supposed to shoot a poor soldier boy who leaves the army and yet leave untouched the wily agitator who induces him to desert to uh, to leave the army? Someone like Val Valandenham, who was totally opposed to the war and and uh, would, in in a sense, tempt soldiers to leave the army. And Lincoln said, "Am I supposed to shoot this this poor little boy, and yet not somehow punish uh, someone like Valandenham?" You know. So yeah, it was a very uh, uh, tricky. Um, legal area because technically it should be done by Congress, not by the president. And it's the one area that has given the most pause to historians over time, to be sure. So, uh, but he, you know, um, I guess in the end, uh, you know, you have to kind of defend him. You have to put yourself in the situation of where, these 11, 11 states have left. There are a lot of opponents. You're faced with a lot of opposition, even in the north. Even in the north, there was a lot of opposition uh, among the copperheads and so forth. So it was, it was a very fluid and kind of dangerous situation. And he felt that uh, at certain points in the war, he did have to suspend habeas corpus. So Lincoln at first was reluctant during the war to recruit African-Americans to fight because he feared alienating the border states. But this changes, and you talk about this in your book. So what happened there? Well, what happened is that um, he said at the beginning, I can't be too harsh on slavery, and I can't use African-American troops, because if I do that, I'm going to lose some of these border states like uh, Kentucky and Missouri and Maryland and so forth, who were still loyal to the Union, but they still held slaves. Uh, they held people in slavery. And he said, if I lose Kentucky, we're just going to lose the whole shebang here. We're, we're, we're going to lose it. So he was on tenterhooks there trying to keep the border states in the union, union, so he was very, very careful about using African-American troops. But what happened is that more and more contrabands who were these previous, previously enslaved black people came over and were absorbed into the union forces, into the armies, at first as uh, workers. Uh, they would dig trenches and that kind of thing. But ultimately, um, there was more and more pressure for them to be used as, as soldiers, military people. And Lincoln more and more realized that this growing number of contrabands, you know, use, use should be made, made of them. And when they started fighting, he was totally thrilled by the heroism that they exhibited in, in battle. If you've seen the movie uh, Glory, uh, which is about African-American troops. You know, it's very, very inspiring. But uh, that's about Fort, Fort Wagner and the, uh, the self-sacrificing heroism of these, these African-American soldiers. And Lincoln grew to really, really respect these, these African-American uh, soldiers and, and really rely on them as well. 
So, as we know, Lincoln would be assassinated by the actor John Wilkes Booth. And you cover in your book that Lincoln had seen Booth perform, uh, and he he really admired his acting, so much to the point that he invited him to the White House several times. So I, I didn't know that. I thought that that was fascinating. And Booth ignored his invitation. So could you talk more about that and what you learned about about that kind of uh, interaction they had? Yeah, Booth was a uh, popular actor, very handsome, known as really the handsomest guy in America, like almost like a movie star. Lincoln saw saw him more than once perform and enjoyed his acting and invited him to the White House. And Booth said, there's no way. You know, Booth was uh, from Maryland. He was a white supremacist and... Uh, thoroughgoing racist and he he hated Lincoln so Booth said there's no way I'm going to go uh, meet uh, that vulgar abolitionist you know in, in the White House and uh, Lincoln was very accustomed to assassination threats in fact he kept a little file in his desk called assassination letters <laughs> he received uh, almost daily you know threats of assassination so it wasn't that so much that drove Booth over the edge. It was more, he um, was from a family of actors and uh, his, his father, Junius Booth, was a great Shakespearean actor, but he got so, in, he, he, you, he introduced what I call the American style of acting, which was like almost beyond, beyond method acting. He was becoming so involved in a role that, for example, Junius Booth almost actually, as Othello, would actually almost smother Desdemona with a pillow and would have to be pulled away by the other actors. He would get very, very involved. And more than once, he, uh, as Richard III, he would chase um, his opponent right out of the theater and continue the sword fight out there. Um, And this kind of mingling of uh, theater and real life was something that affected John Wilkes Booth, who was, um, there were several actors, his brother was Edwin, Edwin Booth, and there were several actors, but John alone in, uh, inherited this kind of American style of acting. And he really got caught up in these dramatic roles. And he too, almost a couple of times, kill, killed his opponent on stage in a sword fight. Uh, and when he tortured someone on stage, he would actually come close to actually torturing the person. And he uh, saw that he saw himself almost as the, uh, the star of a drama and that Lincoln was the villain and he was going to be the hero. And he, he, he killed the Lincoln in a theater. And before he did that, he told someone, you should come to the theater tonight. This is going to be a really good show. And it's almost like he was acting this cloak and dagger kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, he took this American style of acting and he applied it to uh, killing a man that he regarded as a horrible tyrant, almost like a tyrant figure in, let's say, King Lear or, you know, one of the Shakespearean dramas or something like that. So, uh, to wrap up, what did you learn about President Lincoln that had not been 
explored before. And what do you think Lincoln's story has to offer for us today as our country faces its current challenges? Yeah, I, what I discovered was um, that he really identified with Blondin. Blondin was uh, an amazing tight tightrope walker who walked across Niagara Falls, sometimes with a person on his back, sometimes pushing a wheelbarrow, um, sometimes on stilts, uh, backwards in chains at night and so forth. And uh, no net or anything like that. But several times when uh, people would approach Lincoln during the war and say, can't you make this more explicitly an anti-slavery war or some make some, some complaint? He said, I'm blonde and I'm blonde. And basically I'm staying right in the middle here. He hated slavery. Of course he detested slavery, but he had to try to avoid inflaming his opponents as much as he possibly could. And he did that by staying centered on his tightrope. The worst thing that you can do in a divided time is, we would say, is to pour gasoline on the flame of partisanship. That's what he believed. And that's, that's what made him uh, the greatest president, was that he was able to see the other side and also to stay right in the middle. He was always leaning left because he wanted to free the enslaved millions. Uh and also, you wanted the vote for women and all of that. But he really uh, stayed the course uh, in a very centrist kind of way. And it seems to me that's the biggest uh, takeaway is Lincoln is blonde and Charles Blonde. And, yeah. hmm. Well, the book is called Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. Professor David S. Reynolds, we appreciate you being on our show and just sharing your insights about our 16th president. Thank you very much, Richard. Just great to be here. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.